Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And apologies for the weird sounds of my mouth. I got mouth surgery, but don't worry. The doctor said that there is one cure, and that is all of you subscribing to our Substack at AmericanPrestigePod.com. So please go ahead and do that. All right, Derek, let's start with the election in Turkey and what's been going on with Erdogan, etc. Uh, yes. So the first round of Turkey's general election was held on Sunday. Uh, if folks have not listened to the, our election preview with uh, Jean Bajalon, uh that we recorded last week, uh, it's, uh, you might want to check it out. The polling at the time that we recorded that indicated that there was a strong possibility that challenger, presidential challenger Kemal Kilic Darulu might upset uh, the incumbent Recep Tayyip Erdogan. That is not how the election shook out on Sunday. Uh, that instead, did not happen. <laughs> that did not happen. Uh, the two the two are going to a runoff, which will take place on May twenty eighth. There, it, it, this is something of an upset. I mean, for for an incumbent to get taken to a runoff in, in something like this is uh, is you know something of an achievement for the opposition. But uh, the uh, the runoff sets up very much in in Erdogan's favor. Uh, first of all, because he nearly won a first round victory, he finished with 49.4% of the vote. So just shy of the 50% mark that he would have needed to, to win outright. Killer Starlo finished a bit below 45%. Uh, it's difficult to imagine how or where he's going to pick up uh, enough votes to overcome that gap uh, in the second round. Uh, there was a third place finisher, Sinan Oan, who took about 5% of the vote, which would be around what Kilich Darulu needs, but Oan's voters uh, don't really match up very well with Kilich Darulu. They're, they're sort of conservative nationalists, uh, so they have more in common with Erdogan, even if they uh, clearly were not happy with Erdogan or else they would have voted for him uh, in the first place. Uh, they're still ideologically, I think, more in common with Erdogan. Kilich Darulu is pivoting somewhat to try to, I think, appeal to these voters. He has made the presence of millions of mostly Syrian refugees uh, in Turkey, the centerpiece, I guess, of his runoff campaign, blaming Erdogan for their presence. So he is making a play for the xenophobic nationalist vote. Uh, we'll see how successful that is. I, I, I have my doubts. There are a couple of things that emerged in the sort of post-mortem uh, of the first round. One is that Erdogan, uh, and his party, the Justice and Development Party, which looks like it will retain uh, its coalition majority in, in parliament alongside its nationalist partners, uh, did well, did quite well in, in parts of Turkey that were heavily impacted by the earthquake event in February. People may recall that that earthquake event revealed a lot of indications of corruption in Erdogan's government. Uh, for example, uh, it revealed that he has been or his government has been doling out uh, disaster relief funding to cronies effectively for infrastructure projects. It also revealed that Turkish authorities have been looking the other way in many instances when it comes to building codes. Uh, so there was a lot of anger. There was anger at the government's slow response to the earthquake. Uh, that's, that's apparently dissipated or, you know, was never really going to be uh, a factor. These areas, these, these areas that were affected by the earthquake have been long standing, uh, 
uh, justice and development and Erdogan strongholds. So I think people wanted to vote for Erdogan and company anyway. Uh, and, you know, apparently uh, they were not dissuaded by what happened uh, with the earth, with respect to the earthquake. Uh, the other thing that emerged is it seems that Erdogan was uh, quite effectively able to paint Kilic Darulu as the candidate of Turkish Kurds, uh, the Kurdish establishment, political establishment, uh, endorsed Kilish Darolu, uh, and Erdogan used that to great effect with his base, uh, to kind of rally people who might otherwise have considered, uh, voting for the challenger for economic reasons or other, you know, other kind of reasons. Erdogan was able to make this, uh, election about nationalist sentiment. And that's really where he, uh, he thrives at this point. So, uh, yeah, I, it's, Hard to see uh, how the outcome uh, on May 28th will be anything other than uh, Erdogan winning. Uh, he doesn't need that many more votes. He, in fact, he could, uh, if Alon's voters all stay home and decide, you know, we don't want to vote for either of these guys, then Erdogan will win. Uh, so he's got a much uh, easier path to victory, I think. Our man in Istanbul survives to rule another day. Derek, what's going on in Gaza with the ceasefire? Uh, yes, the uh, I mentioned this briefly just because we've we covered the story last week. The Israeli government and Palestinian Islamic Jihad reached a ceasefire agreement that went into effect Saturday night. Uh, there was a little barrage of rocket fire and Israeli retaliation around the time the ceasefire went into effect, but that didn't uh, in, uh, prevent uh, the ceasefire from taking hold. The Egyptian government seems to have been the lead force in negotiating the ceasefire. There were other countries involved, but Egypt uh, was appears to have been the main one. Uh, there was one more incident on Sunday of rocket fire, a single rocket fired out of Gaza. Hamas, uh, which did not get involved in this uh, week-long contest between the Israelis and, and PIJ, uh, said that rocket was uh, fired in error. There was some sort of technical malfunction that, that caused it to happen. Uh, the Israelis did retaliate with a single airstrike, but other, you know, beyond that, uh, things seemed to be. Uh, I don't want to say calm because they're never really calm in, in uh, Israel-Palestine, but uh, at least this conflict that uh, looked at one point like it might spin up into something much bigger uh, looks to be over for the time being. What's going on in Pakistan with Imran Khan and uh, all you prestige heads, you will be lucky and happy <laughs> to hear that in the next week or two. We have a special episode coming out about Imran Khan and the current situation in Pakistan. But Derek, why don't you uh, prep us for that? Sure. Um, so we, we also talked last week about Imran Khan having been arrested uh, by the Islamabad High Court uh, on corruption charges, charges that Khan says are politically motivated. Uh, that arrest, as I, I had just happened when we uh, when we recorded last week, was invalidated by the Pakistani Supreme Court, which sent the case back to the Islamabad High Court. On Friday, that court set Khan free on two weeks, uh, what, what's called interim bail, which just basically means he can't be rearrested for at least two weeks on uh, that particular charge. Now, he could be arrested. Derek's on interim bail for uh, missing a yeah, couple episodes always, last week. Absolutely. Um <laughs> he can be arrested on other charges and we there may be that may be uh, where things are at uh, the pakistani government on wednesday accused khan of harboring fugitives who are wanted for arrest uh, related to their role in the frequently violent protests 
uh, their alleged role in the frequently violent protests that took place last week after Khan's uh, first arrest, uh, that he's harboring people who are, are, are wanted by Pakistani authorities. Uh, they gave him 24 hours to turn these people over. Uh, as far as I know, he hasn't done so. I don't, I mean, I can't even say that he's actually harboring anybody or that if this accusation has any merit to it, but supposedly, uh, it's been reported, uh, that police have surrounded his home in Lahore. Uh, Khan tweeted, on Wednesday evening that he was about to be arrested again. I don't think that's happened yet, but it is a possibility. We'll have to uh, wait and see. Uh, regarding those suspects, the Pakistani government wants to try anybody arrested for violent activity in the protest last week in military court, which gives it a uh, substantial latitude on the prosecutorial side. Uh, there are weaker standards in military court court in terms of due process, in terms of evidence. Uh, so it is, uh, you know, designed to get convictions uh, or that, you know, it's meant to get uh, get convictions against these people. Um, so that's that's where things stand. It's kind of a, a, a tense situation once again, but um, I, I haven't seen any uh, indication that uh, things have broken one way or the other. Derek, could you give us an update on the election in Thailand? Yes, there was a major election also on Sunday in Thailand, which is uh, in theory supposed to bring Thailand out of uh, the period of military rule it's been under since the military's 2014 coup. I say in theory, we'll get to this, but but the, the military has kind of rigged the system to make sure that it never really gives up power. Uh, but the election uh, showed a clear preference on the part of the Thai people to get away from military rule because the two largest uh, the country's two largest civilian opposition parties, the Move Forward Party and the Futai Party, uh, won a fairly overwhelming victory. Combined, they now hold, or they will hold 293 seats in the 500-seat House of Representatives, so a fairly uh, substantial majority. Move Forward uh, was the the emerged as the largest party in the new parliament, so its leader. Uh, and I'm going to mangle his name, so I apologize in advance. Pita Limjaroanrat will get first crack, presumably, at becoming prime minister. He says that he's now, uh, this is uh, as of Thursday when we we're recording this, uh, announced that he had gotten an agreement for an eight-party coalition uh, that would control 313 seats in the House of Representatives, so an even larger majority in that body. The problem is, and this is where the military comes in, after the 2014 coup, the Thai military put in place a number of measures to make sure that it was never really out of the, the political game. And the, the biggest of those was uh, it created a 250-seat Senate in which all the seats are appointed by the military. And the requirement for any would-be prime minister or would-be cabinet is a majority of votes in a combined session of parliament. So that means you need 376 votes to uh, be elected or be uh, uh, ratified uh, as prime minister and for your cabinet to be ratified. Obviously, uh, Lim Jaron Rat doesn't have 376 votes. Uh, he's fairly short of that, in fact. Uh, he seems to be banking on the notion that the military or at least some portion of that 250 uh, member Senate uh, and maybe uh, one of the other civilian or more military aligned uh, civilian parties would uh, respect the results of the election, which show a clear preference uh, for non-military rule. I'm not sure how far 
uh, he's going to get with that. Uh, there are a number of alternative scenarios that could happen here. One of them includes Futai, the party that finished second, uh, kind of dumping move forward and forming its own coalition with uh, the military part, uh, the military parties, uh, which would then get the backing of those 250 senators. This might be the uh, broadest and most stable, in some sense, uh, government that can emerge. It's also conceivable that the military could say. Uh, we're going to do this by ourselves. Obviously, they already have 250 senators, so they only need uh, another 126 votes in the House of Representatives. They might be able to get that. Uh, it would be a mi- minority government in the House of Representatives, so it wouldn't be able to get anything done legislatively, barring another military coup. And it would probably uh, really anger the Thai population, considering it would be uh, a complete repudiation of the the election results. But that is a theoretical possibility. Um some of this, the negotiations that uh, go on here, uh, obviously, other, the other possibility is a hung parliament, and everybody has to go do this again uh, in a few months. But one of the main considerations here uh, is likely to be move forward's position on Thailand's Les Majeste laws, which prevent criticism of the, the Thai monarchy. Um, this is a big issue for Move Forward, which has promised to decriminalize criticism of the monarchy. Uh, it's also a big issue for conservatives who want to maintain these laws. Uh, so uh, Move Forward may have to compromise somewhat to get the extra votes it needs, or if it doesn't, uh, that could uh, make this negotiating this coalition negotiating process quite uh, quite interesting. Thanks, Eric. And uh, we hope to do a little bit more work on Thailand soon. So everyone keep your eyes open, your ears open rather for that. All right, Derek, uh, give us an update on Sudan. Do uh, what I say. Yes. <laughs> You're the news machine <laughs> that I command. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Sudan, again, uh, as I said last week, there's not a, a there's not a lot of new stuff happening here, but I feel like we need to keep mentioning it because it is still, the conflict is still going on between the military and the rapid support forces, uh, and people are still dying and uh, being put in very dangerous situations. Uh, the parties reached what, what they called a declaration of principles uh, last week during their negotiations in Saudi Arabia. Among these principles were to protect civilians, to try and restore basic services like electricity hospitals, for example, which have gotten been closed down, uh, especially in Khartoum and, and surrounding cities, uh, and to protect uh, or open access for humanitarian relief to get to civilians who are trapped in the war zones. As with all the ceasefires that they've negotiated, there is absolutely been absolutely no indication uh, over the, the last week that there's any upholding of these principles going on. The fighting has continued uh, pretty much unchecked. Uh, civilians are still being targeted. There was a report uh, I believe on Wednesday uh, in a couple of outlets that uh, the military is going around arresting civilian activists now, possibly uh, because they're documenting or trying to document the war's atrocities and the military would prefer that they not do that. Uh, so, you know, things are continuing pretty much as before. One thing to note is that f- the violence uh, in West Darfur, which has been kind of on and off since this conflict started, really seems to have picked up at the end of last week. Uh, scores of people were killed in and around the city of Janina, which is the, the capital of West Darfur State. Uh, this is violence that's associated with the conflict. It's also a product of longstanding intercommunal tensions in that region. But the, the conflict, and particularly the RSF's role, because the RSF is closely tied to the Arab tribes who are one, in that region, who are one of the, the groups involved in this fighting, uh, 
has exacerbated the conflict. And it's also meant that there's really no security state to speak of at this point. It's, it's all a vacuum. So, uh, these kinds of conflicts can, can happen. They can get out of control. Uh, and there's nobody that, that, uh, is prepared to step in and, and stop them. Thanks, Sarek. Uh, now let's talk about a little bit of good news. Uh, Brazil deforestation seems to be down. Yes. So this is uh, a report from the uh, Brazilian the data from the Brazilian government shows uh, satellite imagery uh, is what they use mostly to try and determine this. The deforestation in the Amazon declined 68% in April compared with April 2022. This is the first I would say really substantial monthly decline in the rate of deforestation since Luis Inacio Lula da Silva took office in January. Of course, people um, presumably remember that Jair Bolsonaro, the former president of Brazil, uh, wanted <laughs> essentially wanted to burn the entire rainforest down. That was the policy he pursued. Uh, he, you know, defanged uh, any office in, in the Brazilian government that had to do with the environment or with protection of rainforests or indigenous uh, land rights. Uh, and turned the place over to illegal miners, to farmers, clear cutters. Uh, so one of Lula's promises during the campaign and, and after he, you know, took office again at the beginning of the year was to reverse this and to protect the rainforest. This is, uh, really, it's taken him some time to try and rebuild, uh, the government's capacity in this regard. But this is the first indication that, uh, that's maybe starting to take hold. Obviously, it's one month, but, deforestation, the rate of deforestation is down so far in 2023 as compared with the first four months of 2022. Uh, so uh, yeah, as you say, a kind of rare bit of, uh, of good news, but uh, hopefully this will, this is something that will continue. If Ted Lasso is a nice lasso, let's talk about a mean lasso. Derek, what's going on with Ecuador's <laughs> Guillermo Lasso? Yeah, Ted's cousin, Guillermo, uh, happens to be president of uh, the uh, of Ecuador. Uh, not for very much longer, perhaps, but uh, he's been under uh, scrutiny, under investigation for uh, alleged embezzlement. Uh, Lasso denies uh, any, any involvement in any embezzlement schemes, but the Ecuadorian National Assembly... Uh, started, opened an impeachment trial against him on Tuesday. Uh, there were 88 votes to open the impeachment trial and 92 would be needed, would have been needed, I should say, uh, to remove him from office. So it, not lo- it was not looking good uh, for Lasso's uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, fortunes here. So on Wednesday, uh, he invoked uh, the Ecuadorian legal clause, constitutional stipulation that is hyperbolically referred to as mutual death, which allows Ecuadorian presidents to dissolve the assembly, uh, but then forces them to schedule a snap, snap election, not only for the assembly, but also for the presidency within 90 days. Uh, this does prevent, now, assembly leaders have suggested they might attempt to fight this uh, in court. I don't know how much traction they could actually get there, uh, but assuming that it holds this means that Lasso will rule by decree until the new president and new assembly are ready to take office. Um, he can run for re-election. His approval rating hovers usually in the teens in polling, so I don't know that his chances uh, of being re-elected would be all that great. Uh, but that's where things stand. Uh, the, the new president and new assembly, uh, whoever they might be, will fill out, uh, run out the rest of this current term 
uh, until the regularly scheduled uh, general election in 2025. All right, Derek, let's talk about Ukraine. And why don't we start with the Black Sea deal that was just renewed? Yes, despite making a lot of noise about not renewing the Black Sea Grain Initiative, Russia, the Russian government seems to have blinked a bit on Wednesday uh, out of the blue somewhat. Uh, earlier in the week, the, the reporting on this was quite grim. There were no plans to have any more meetings about it. It, was, it seemed like uh, it was going to expire on Thursday, May 18th. So it seemed like uh, things were just sort of on autopilot to, to the deal running out. On Wednesday, the Russian government agreed to renew the initiative for at least the next two months. Uh, despite continually complaining about a lack of protection for Russian agricultural exports, and even in the statement announcing the renewal, saying uh, we still have all these grievances, none of them have been even really addressed, let alone satisfied. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what the rationale for extending it under those circumstances was. Uh, the Russian government obviously wanted to put the best possible light on it, so they said that uh, Vladimir Putin is deeply concerned with global food security. I'm not sure that I buy that, but sure, let's let's go with that. Uh, the two month extension uh, and the previous extension was also for two months. So you know the Russians get another chance in two months to make some noise about, for example, getting the Russian Agricultural Bank back on the SWIFT uh, financial network, which is their big ask. But you know, the the more times this gets renewed, despite these constant complaints, the more it seems like maybe uh, the Russians are bluffing a little bit. They're not willing to take this uh, this step of doing away with the initiative altogether. But I don't know. I, I, again, it's uh, it's a little unclear why they uh, why they did this. And so, what's going on with the peace initiatives? Well, so there's a, a couple of things to to say. I mean, the the on the battlefield, there are continue to be some reports of. Ukrainian advances around uh, the city of Bakhmut, which, of course, has been the epicenter of the fighting for some time now. Uh, Russian, there are reportedly uh, Russian forces retreating kind of on the outskirts of the city. This has been claimed by uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, who's complaining about it. It's also been claimed by the Ukrainians. The Russian military acknowledged some withdrawal uh, from uh, positions north of Bakhmut uh, late last week on Friday. Uh, they characterized this as a decision to regroup uh, and get back into the fight. Prigozhin uh, characterized it as a rout. Uh, he's really not happy with the, the Russian military these days. Uh, there have been, the Ukrainians have, have claimed advances uh, in other areas south of the city as well. Uh, Prigozhin and Wagner uh, still appear to be holding ground inside Bakhmut and may have even uh, advanced a little bit in the city. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, still basically a stalemate. Let's be, be real here. Uh, but there's, of course, a lot of focus on, uh, you know, when is the next, uh, uh, when is the big counteroffensive coming and is this the big counteroffensive? It doesn't seem uh, that way. But, uh, you know, and, and Volodymyr Zelensky has said we're not, ready yet and need more time so so who knows um the other thing to note on the the battlefield this week is that the russian military has been engaging in nightly uh aerial bombardments again this is a pattern that that uh goes back a few uh, a couple of months now at least although they've been uh, off and on with it uh the ukrainians keep claiming these outrageous 
uh, success rates in terms of shooting down Russian missiles. You know, they say, well, the Russians fired 30 missiles last night. We shot down 29 of them. Or the Russians fired 18 missiles at Kiev last night. We shot down all of them. This is pretty, pretty hard to believe, but, uh, you know, there's no way to, uh, I guess, confirm or uh, at least not. Uh, in Western media to confirm or deny uh, those claims. The, the Ukrainians have also claimed to sh- be shooting down hypersonic Russian missiles, the Kinjal, which is uh, supposed to be uh, impossible to defend against, essentially. Uh, they keep claiming that they're shooting these things down with Patriot batteries uh, provided by the U.S. and, and European uh, governments. Again, it's a little, I mean, the other night they said they shot down six Kinjal missiles. It's a little hard to believe uh, that they're having this much success, but, um, you know, that's, that's their story. And I guess they're sticking to it. Now on the, on the peace initiative front, there are two things happening. Uh, the Chinese government, uh, which some time back when uh, Xi Jinping had his big phone call with Zelensky promised to send a delegate, their special representative for Eurasian affairs, Li Hui, uh, promised to send him to uh, Russia and Ukraine on a peace mission. He arrived in Ukraine uh, this week, spent a couple of days meeting with Ukrainian officials, uh, Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba in particular. Uh, I don't think he got anywhere. Uh, according to the Ukrainian Foreign Ministry, Kuleba told him, told Lee, that, that Ukraine would, uh, I'm quoting here, not accept any proposals involving the loss of its territories or the freezing of the conflict. Uh, so that doesn't seem to leave a lot of room for negotiation, but, uh, who knows? Lee's trip is supposed to take him to Poland, uh, I believe Germany and France and then to Russia. Uh, I think that's the order that he's going in. So, you know, we'll see if he has any better luck here. I think the, the goal for China is not necessarily to actually get an agreement or get some kind of a, a peace deal on the table, but to be seen as playing in the arena of peacemaking, which is an arena that uh, is typically the province of great powers. And that's what the Chinese government uh, would like to be viewed as. Uh, if they could do some kind of a deal, that would be even, you know, uh, that would be sort of icing on the cake because it would uh, be embarrassing for the U.S., for example. Uh, but I don't think that there's uh, an overt uh, sense or the, uh, an, an expectation that this is what's going to happen. Uh, now, the other thing to note on the peace initiative front is that there's apparently now an African delegation that is going to visit Ukraine and Russia to try and uh, negotiate some kind of an accord. Uh, this was announced by Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa, earlier this week. He said that both uh, Putin and Zelensky had agreed to receive uh, a peace mission that would include the leaders, in addition to Ramaphosa, it would include the leaders of Egypt, the Republic of the Congo, Senegal, Uganda, and Zambia. Uh, all of whom are on reasonably good terms with Putin, which gives them uh, a chance to kind of try to play mediator. And many of them, which have uh, many of them have uh, are leading countries or running countries that have good reason to want an end to this conflict and specifically to the disruption that it has caused to the global food trade. Uh, there again is not much reason to expect this, this mission to have much luck if the Ukrainians really are on the verge of, or have begun their big counteroffensive. I don't think that they're going to be in the uh, in the have any interest really in freezing the conflict. They're going to want to let this play out and see what happens. Uh, the third international thing uh, to note, which is not a peacemaking initiative, but is nevertheless noteworthy, is that 
UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and Mark Rutte, the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, announced uh, on Tuesday that they were forming an international coalition with the aim of bolstering Ukraine's air capabilities, air combat capabilities. Uh, they're pro- gonna, they, they plan to provide Ukraine with uh, whatever they need, training, uh, armaments, whatever, to, to boost their, uh, their air capabilities. And this includes trying to facilitate the acquisition of F-16s, which the Ukrainians have been after for quite some time. The Biden administration has been resisting this. Uh, I have maintained that the Biden administration will eventually give in on this point, uh, and this may be a step in that direction. Uh, the What may wind up happening, and I think is probably the likeliest scenario uh, if Ukraine is to get F-16s, and of course they'll need to train probably for, uh, their pilots will need to train for you know potentially weeks uh, or, or even a couple of months to, to use this new aircraft. Uh, but if, uh, if they do get the F-16, I think it will come from European countries that are using the aircraft. So, I mean, there are a number of these, uh, Belgium, Denmark, the Netherlands, Norway, uh, among others, uh, you fly the F-16. Uh, some of those countries, at least Norway in particular, uh, is on the brink of retiring their F-16 fleet because they want to buy F-35s. Uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a stockpile of F-16s in Europe that the U.S. would not have to directly provide. It would have to give permission uh, for these countries to re-export them onto Ukraine. Uh, but the U.S. wouldn't have to directly get get involved in in the provision. So I, I suspect that if it happens, that's the that's the way it'll happen. It won't be the U.S. sending planes itself. It will be these European countries sending F-16s that they you know may no longer even really want anymore. Uh, and Thank that's uh, that's where I, I suspect we're heading. Uh, but you know the the Biden administration still seems still says it's uh, hesitant to do this. So so we'll see. We'll keep our eye on it. All right, let's end with a new Cold War update. And let's start with Biden canceling his trip to Papua New Guinea and Australia. Yes, uh, Joe Biden is heading this weekend to Japan for a, a summit of the G7, where they'll probably talk a lot about Ukraine. He was supposed to follow that up with a trip to a brief trip, just hours long trip to Papua New Guinea. He would have been the first U.S. president to visit that country uh, as president, at least sitting U.S. president to visit that country. Uh, he was supposed to have signed a new uh, defense agreement with the, the Papua New Guinean government, as well as a number of other uh, agreements. He was then supposed to go on to Australia for a meeting of the Quad, uh, the uh, group that includes Australian Prime Minister uh, Anthony Albanese, uh, Japanese Prime Minister Kishida Fumio, and Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, uh, which is the don't call it anti-China, anti-China block that the, the U.S. has put together. He's had to cancel that because he needs to be back in Washington to try to negotiate uh, some kind of arrangement on the debt ceiling and whatever giveaway he's going to give to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, to get McCarthy to uh, raise the debt ceiling and therefore avoid what would have to be the dumbest, most self-inflicted uh, default in world history. I'm rooting for is, it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> it would. I mean, I'm almost at the point where I'm like, yeah, let's see what happens. What? Why not? Let's let's go nuts. Uh, Biden. So Biden has canceled both of those trips. The quad meeting now looks like it will happen on the sidelines of the G7 uh, summit. Modi will will be there in an observer capacity. So the four of them uh, could get together and, and Albanese will, will be there as well. So the four of them could get together there. 
uh, the trip to Papua New Guinea isn't going to happen. And this has raised some concerns among the, you know, people who think that the United States has to show up in the Pacific to show that we're, we're there, we're present, we hear you, we care, uh, in the battle for hearts and minds with, with China. Uh, so the U.S. government has promised instead as a replacement for this trip to Papua New Guinea that it will, uh, organize another U.S. Pacific Island summit later this year as a demonstration of U.S. commitment to the region. Uh, of note, uh, in addition to the PNG thing, the other things of note in the Pacific uh, are that two of the three countries that have compacts of uh, free association uh, with the United States, the three countries are the Federated States of Micronesia, uh, Palau, and the Marshall Islands. Two of those countries, Micronesia and Palau, have now agreed to renew their COFA deals. Uh, Micronesia's deal is supposed to expire this year. Uh, these have been in place since the 1980s, since those countries uh, gained independence. And what they basically do is they, they obligate the U.S. to provide defense uh, protection for the three countries and ec economic aid to those three countries. And in return, the U.S. Navy and, I guess, Coast Guard as well get to sail their waters uh, you know, at, at will, which is uh, important if you think there's going to be some sort of military conflict uh, in the Pacific. That's important real estate. Uh, so the Biden administration has made negotiating renewals of these deals a, a top priority. Uh, it's now completed two of them. The, the negotiations with the Marshall Islands are apparently not going quite as uh, swimmingly as the ones with Palau and Micronesia. I don't know why uh, the Marshall Islands is heading into an election later this year. So there may be some political uh, uh, kind of stalemating uh, going on there, political uh, 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 kind of things may be frozen in place because of that, but I, I don't know. Uh, nevertheless, these two COFA agreements, the extensions, I think might have been part of Biden's uh, visit, the, the celebrating or, you know, signing onto the extensions might have been part of his uh, Papua New Guinea trip, but that will uh, now have to happen in, a, in another context. And let's end on the final new Cold War update with the U.S. selling weapons shock among shocks to autocracies. Yeah, so this is a, a very good piece in The Intercept. If people uh, haven't read it by Stephen Semler, uh, I would go check it out. Uh, Stephen covers a lot of kind of defense spending topics. He's got a, uh, a sub-stack of his own. But uh, he noted, uh, and I'll just mention this briefly from, from the piece, there's a... Uh, there are a couple of, you know, uh, there are a lot of outlets that do these kind of measurements of, uh, you know, how democratic is your your country versus, you know, how autocratic. And, uh, you know, none of them are great. They're all very subjective and imperfect. But uh, the U.S. government pays a lot of attention to these things. And uh, as uh, Stephen says, there's one called the Regimes of the World System. Uh, that classifies countries according to an, on an autocratic to democratic scale of the, he says of the 84 countries that are uh, identified as autocracies under that system uh, in 2022, the U S sold weapons to at least 48 of them, which is 57% uh, was probably more because the U S doesn't uh, kind of uh, specify smaller arms sales. It, it, it talks about the big, big deals, but the smaller deals can get uh, lumped together. So, uh, you know, it's a bit obfuscated. Uh, the, there, in another system, the Freedom House, which people are probably more uh, familiar with, the Freedom House system lists 85 countries 
uh, that are not designated as uh, electoral democracies, uh, ergo autocracies of some kind. The U.S. sold weapons in 2022 to 49 of them, or 58 percent. So we when the Biden administration, come on, we can. I think we can. I think we're we're underperforming here. But the important thing uh, I think is when the Biden administration talks about the conflict uh, of our time between democracies and autocracies, uh, it's important to note that we're selling weapons to both. So, uh, you know, what's the difference? Derek, thank you so much. Everyone, the only way to heal me is to subscribe to our Substack, and we'll see you all soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.